Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, in a parallel universe, poets stand on street corners and recite for us. We stop what we're doing and gather together with friends and strangers to listen. Then we pay them some tribute and go on with our days, moved and enriched in some way. In this universe, the tiny yet expansive corridor that is open books is packed on a given night with a gathering of emerging poets and their admirers. The listeners pay tribute with applause and the purchase of a wonderful book suitable for signing. Then maybe they go down the road to the Blue Moon Tavern to celebrate with the ghosts of Carolyn Kaiser, Richard Hugo, and Theodore Retke. Or maybe that's in the parallel universe, it's not clear to mark the launch of the Best New Poets 2017 anthology. Open Books hosted this reading on January 26th. The poets in order of appearance are Aaron McCoy, Sarah Bates, Christina M., Elisa Ogie, Caitlin Roach, and Amanda Turner. Please note, this recording contains unedited language, I think it's just one word, of an adult nature. Here, Open Books owner Billy Swift introduces the reading. Thank you all so much for coming to tonight's reading. This is our first reading of 2018, and we are, I said 2018, I was afraid I was going to say 2017, and we are very excited to be welcoming um, a tremendous lineup of remarkable emerging poets selected by Natalie Diaz, for the Best New Poets Anthology of 2017. Uh, tonight's poets are going to be introduced by Aaron McCoy, who is one of tonight's reader. But I have the extreme pleasure of introducing Aaron. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save all my long gushing for Aaron when I introduce her when she has her first book, because that's going to be amazing. Yeah. Erin is uh, a dear friend of the store and is one of the many reasons that we are all in this space to begin with. Erin has done tremendous things for open books, and open books would not be what it is without her hard work. Also, as a poet, Erin is absolutely um, one of my favorite in all of everything, so I'm very excited. Erin McCoy holds an MFA in poetry and an MA in Hispanic studies from the University of Washington. Her poetry has appeared or is forthcoming in Bennington Review, Pleiades, Diagram, Cimarron Review, and other publications. She is community outreach coordinator and public relations manager for Open Books, Seattle's poetry-only bookstore, and has received a Fulbright Fellowship and the Oakley Hall Third Memorial Scholarship to attend the community of writers in Squaw Valley, California, among other awards. Please welcome Erin McCoy. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much to everyone for coming. Um, this is incredible. Um, now we'll just have to find out what I'm going to read because, you know, we'll figure that out as we go <laughs> along. Um, I'm going to read my, my poem from the book last, so I just have about four poems today. 
Um, the first one is called Cross Sections of the Beloved with Swans and on 75th Street, Northwest Seattle. Um, some of it is quotes from another person. So sometimes when I say I, I might be talking from the perspective of that other person. A spackle of swans on the far bank, the River Shannon, gold bridge lights, fog scraping its nails down the docks, kayakers learning and failing. It is too dark out. It is two swans out for this. The bridges blanked out, snuffs of swan like cotton. He said to us, I am an inventor. He said, two kinds of zipper, and I could sell 50,000 of each. A smash of feathers, all bulbs out. They begin to cross the river toward us, much crumbing. He said, I could sell them. For how much? Guess. A million dollars. He said, I won't sell them. A bevy of swans crossing, dashed line like a zipper's teeth. He said, a scarf that when you attack the woman that wears it, it kills you instantly. A perforation of swans spitting, oil in the pan. Your arm enfolds me. If I ever have to be cold again, I don't know how I'll open my jaws. All the low smokestacks, limerick asleep, even if you shake her. Glass coffin, here, there, a smack of bunnies or swallows cutting little hearts out of the sky. He said, when you are rich and divorced, do you know what you climb? Mount Kilimanjaro. You have to watch out for the women there. Swans from one bank pass to the other. They don't know the directions. My son fired an entire office, then was out of town again in less than 24 hours. Your chest is a case. Little latch, and eye with fingers small enough to displace it. Reader, you expect here a sputter of bells, a scab of roses? Forget it. This he doesn't hide from me. What we need is money. Signets peering from between, beneath two locked wings. If I ever have to be cold again, the bulbs will be shattering. I crushed one with my heel just last week. It was like midwifing a moth. He said, a tree you can trim with your boots on. He said, a new electric color. It is too cough out. It is too sick clouds. He said, I got an offer on my house. Guess. A million dollars, I said. A million dollars today buys exactly nothing. He asked us to ask the man raking his lawn what he gets paid. We asked in Spanish. He said, I'm trying to help him. I'm going to give him my hot tub and my truck. I'm going on a trip around the world. A bevy of swans closing around us. We are at a corner of railing over the River Shannon, dangling exactly nothing. What a luxury to not carry food on your person. He said, I know what I'm worth. It is all plains out. The swans will cross a river, but they will not beg. Dusk zips shut around our faces. Fog trills a glissando along the city's edge like we're inside a piano. There's nothing to do but breathe. You want a wooden case to enclose your body. The clouds grow so heavy. I understand. We cross oceans and continents trying to shake them. We never can. I used to be so afraid of what I had. Um, so I think I'm going to read um, two sort of related poems from a book I'm writing about the great auk, which is an extinct flightless seabird. But the poems aren't really about the auk. You'll just hear it mentioned once or twice. Um, uh, so this one's called Deficiencies. I've come to make appeal of this question, split orange wide and dripping when I'm done. Wild mustard chalks the cheeks of the Scottish highlands. That moon leaned down to smell it. 
I had to follow. This makes me a tide, no better or worse. This makes me everything and contain everything we call overboard. I held up an orange and shut one eye. I've never seen a pond empty that fast. Grains and a light blur. Barrels of barley. A fish caught in an ox throat, not caught in a ship's stomach. The ship's gums bleeding. The opening of previously healed wounds. I've come from a long line of needing forgiveness but never wanting to ask. A descendant of Robert the Bruce, famous for killing a lord mostly by accident. Other deaths he intended. That is less interesting. Stalks of grain in a light blur. They said missing when they meant away. I've come to see what the ox saw, but all I can make out are the masts of my pelvis. Please. I'm told there are deaths more interesting than this bird's. I hope to die of slimness, for instance. Why, then? Bother. They said down when they meant less. Land, draved, land dry and shaved as pretty ribs in a skin tent. I believe anything I learn about barrenness. I've come, but you see I haven't. I spin on my axis, always arriving, smudge of the peel in my hand as it passes across the same sky, dry grain in a light blur, tipped. They said revision when they meant this. They said taste of your own medicine. Wet orange skinned and ripped open like you part the ribs when you want the heart. I'll do a short one just to give you guys a break. Uh, but it's related to the last one. It's called The Way Out of the Body is North. Sheep mute, stain of fur up down my fingers, take a wild guess. I couldn't know what wound, what word, but sure can make a mess. I won't pretend the way a cat's cradle falsifies an escape hatch. Mucked up much in, much in guess what, guess how just pronounced out my dumb mouth and couldn't shut back into my hat in the bogs again. It's safe when all mud blanked you become it. So easy it was when I walloped into the highlands, opened my fist and found hard tufted heather there. Mute every hillock of mustard, dry mound, a glen shut lips up down the plain. No, no more guessing. The moor with sheep boils over. They don't speak and aren't ashamed. I took the game in my hand and made it string. Okay, so this is the poem from the book. I have to manage my breathing on this one. It's called Futures. We drank champagne on the eve of the moon stuck out its jaw slowly. Swallow is the color of victory. We upped rents in Monopoly. You grew a garden, especially tulips. The cascades are hazel at dusk only. The moon opened its jaw slowly. In your neck, a nodule, like a tulip's bulb, mostly cloaked and strange to its body. Champagne is the color of sputtering earth. The bulb with its pale hairs, moon tentacles, the color of... You have a knot in your throat, and what's shrinking is not the knot, but the moon bared all its teeth slowly. The gravel in the bulb bed, not mule teeth gleaming with calcite, too dirt common to polish clean like the mole's snout is common like. The skin on its eyes is too like lymphocytes in their milk-white teaspoons. Once we found sour nickels in the grass. Press them into our cheeks to see what grew. 
Today, the doctor said, a sour spoon has tunneled out a house in you. The moon is swallowing like a python, the mouse brown clouds slowly. And we line up champagne corks, little top hats. Life is civilized. Don't forget that now that you have a garden, especially tulips. Now I own all the railroads and every passenger pays me handsomely. But you wink and glim past me. You build hotels and clutch every property to your sternum, even the poorest. The loam in your garden is porous and mole-hold, and moles survive it. Although ice has come very early, it's said they can't see, but even with skin spannering their vision, they glimpse the patter of light, know the seasons churn, the slant of moonlight like a glass cutter. The cascades are bruised blue at dusk only. That is, too early, our moon shuts its mouth slowly, lumps of once cloud tunneling down its body, fish-eyeing the stars that crawl over its skin. Thank you. So now I get to introduce everyone else. Um, this will be more fun. Um, so we're, we're, we have five more readers tonight, um, all just stunning poets. And so, well, let's get started. Um, we're starting with Sarah Bates. Um, in May of 2016, a three-year-old boy climbed into a zoo enclosure inhabited by a male Western lowland gorilla named Harambe. A zoo worker shot and killed Harambe to save the boy's life. I'm sure you've all heard this story and not always in the kindness, kindest of contexts. Sarah Bates's poem, Blue Rhino, is an elegy, not only for Harambe, but for the systematic and escalating mass extinctions, senseless murders, and acts of violence that we have all participated in and exacerbated in our role as passive or cynical spectators. Quote, this is my heart at the museum feeling too much, Sarah writes but it is exactly this kind of feeling we need, this kind of feeling that compels empathy and change. Sarah Bates has an MFA in poetry from Northern Michigan University and currently teaches at Southern Utah University in Cedar City. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in The Rumpus, Meridian, Seneca Review, Poor Claudia, Hotel America, and many other publications. Her work shifts effortlessly between registers from email subject lines to headlines to voices gripped with an intimate personal sorrow in response to the brutal to brutal public losses. Her work is populated with helicopters and proper nouns and animals as they really are. I can't stop writing about floating horns, she writes. Sarah, don't stop. Please come up. Oh, thank you guys um, so much for having me. Thank you so much, Erin. Um, it's just a crazy feeling, um, especially this is my the first bookstore I've ever been in that's all poetry, and it feels as great as I thought it would. So, <laughs> Okay, so um, just to kind of preface, um, it is about Harambe, but um, it's about a, a lot of other things too, which you will um, 
encounter as I read. Um, I, I moved to Michigan about four years ago now to do my MFA, and um, it was a really hard place to move, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, eight months of winter, lots of snow, and I was really sad. And um, so one day, I was so sad that I Googled um, the saddest things happening in the world right now, and um, one of the things that came up was that the northern white rhino was going extinct, and so I became obsessed with that. Um, and so my book is actually about the northern white rhino going extinct, and this is one of the pieces that kind of circles around that. So it's called Blue Rhino. This is the sound of caterpillars burning, the passenger rear tire with a screw in its left side and the wolf in its own mouth. This is the last letter I wrote you, the first love coming back and the elephant leading me there, the letter I never sent. Bags hang from rotting trees, bodies fall to the feet of Virginia, Do Virginia dogwood, the monarch spills across Appalachia, and the smallest white rhino learns to walk along the coast. This is me standing under the world's largest mounted specimen, and you don't even know. The sign above me says the 24,000-pound African bush elephant was 55 years old when Joseph J. Finyoff came to hunt. This is the distance between six white rhinos and the oldest love my heart catching the train to the Smithsonian and a butterfly in my hair. Bullets reach sky. The dolphin smells its own blood. Every elephant comes home head first. This is my friend telling me to pose for a picture, but all I see are swollen hands, his fingertips around the wrong neck, someone else's body at the top of the moat. Every time I bump into a stranger, I see the deer's eyes between broken limbs, fiberglass made of painted ivory. This is Harambe dying, Masamba wobbling, you talking to God at 25,000 feet, me in the passenger seat above the three sisters, just so I could send you a picture. Between tusks too heavy to mount, I follow the sounds of heavy rains, Beneath the mystery and water, the rocks unknown, I know the age of honeybees. I see the seal puking up curdled milk and the swallow thrown out of its own nest. This is you telling me how the trees would fall asleep, how Teddy would leave behind the bear and bring home someone else, how the elephant would cross the river singing, but the children would be too afraid to play. This is my heart at the museum feeling too much. One of the largest living mammals, the sign reads, this rhinoceros is currently endangered. My heart in the shallow burrows where penguins lay their eggs. Former President Roosevelt collected this specimen in 1909. My heart writing poems about Nola on the train to the zoo. I speak of Africa and golden joys. I was buying a ticket to the San Diego Safari Park for the second time. My dad used to burn caterpillars out of our front yard's trees, how he would wait for dust to settle and then light matches to them. I couldn't see their eyes, but I could imagine their moving bodies, pitch black and bright yellow. It was the smell of plants burning. Sometimes I'd lie in bed and imagine them waking up to the flames. Sometimes I'd bury them beside the same tree that burned. This is my heart snow-covered in summer, my heart at the foot of dogwoods making no sense. Sitting at a blue table inside Little Italy, you pour my coffee into yours. 
I tell you how I can't stop writing about floating horns, her face on the other side, how now there are only three. You asked if I'd write about the second engine if you showed it to me. I come home head first, I say, smelling the coffee black running from the people on the train, how you nudged me off the sidewalk because it's something your grandpa would do. In 1909, Roosevelt made a deal with the Smithsonian. They would fund an expedition to East Africa and he would bring back big game for the museum's collection. With a river craft, two sailboats, and some rowboats, he'd travel hundreds of miles down the Nile to Lado Enclave, hundreds of miles to one white rhino. He planned to shoot two family groups, one for the Smithsonian and another that he had promised to a sculptor and taxidermist working at the American Museum of Natural History. Roosevelt, who was known for being a conservationist, knew the white rhino was already nearing extinction, but felt the species was inevitably doomed and it was important for him to collect specimens before it went extinct. In the end, he shot five, another four killed by someone else. As game, rhinos were known for being unimpressive. Most were shot while waking up. During the spree, 60-foot flames swept through red sky and elephant grass, Roosevelt and his men waking to the aftermath of apocalypse. This is me and our hometown making sidewalk from the ash of ivory tusks, waiting for Skyfari. I read about fewer wolves, caribou hunters leaving them behind to die, how sometimes they'd spill for a week and no one would know. They eat coyotes alive, you tell me, how they'll take a bite out of the elk's back leg before it's had time to lift its second antlers, before it's learned to cross the river. This is me 16,000 feet above Banff telling a stranger about the snare around its neck, the smell of rotting blood and the ivory ash covering our front yard's trees, and how sometimes the zoo is the only place I can go to be the sad. You talk when you cease to be at peace with your thoughts. At the top of Marble Canyon, I see rainbows and dogwoods, orange mud across man-made grass. A couple asks why I do it alone. I say sometimes the forest has to die, the wolf killed in its sleep. And in much of your talking, thinking is half murdered. I say sometimes the only way to African plains is through spilling ochre. The first time I read about Roosevelt, he was on a hunt for a bear. How she was 225 pounds and mangy looking, but by the time he got to her, he just couldn't do it. He asked a friend instead and chose a knife to put her out of her misery. He couldn't shoot something that had already been through such a fight. This is you calling as soon as the train stopped, putting on your green suit and asking me what it means. This is my heart at the table waiting to say blue, my heart missing the 5.30 bus and carrying Gabron. I was just so sad, I tell you, for even as love crowns you, so shall he crucify you. I'm just so sad, I would say to the snow, I just want to be friends again. For months I fell asleep to all the animals awake. For months you never said anything. Even as he is for your growth, so is he for your pruning. Months later at the Smithsonian, I pass a stuffed grizzly, her arms lifted as if to fight. This is me Googling the saddest things happening in the world right now, eight months after you left. 
Jane Goodall says Zoo had no choice but to kill Harambe the gorilla. This is me moving to Michigan, and you didn't even know. He may have been protecting the boy and putting an arm around him. Jane and Gorilla Forest waiting to push send. But when people come into contact with wild animals, then five days later, the email in her outbox regarding complex questions. This is my heart buried 13 feet in Elephant Valley. This is my heart writing to tell you countdown to extinction, only six northern white rhinos left on earth. I see Harambe in his birthday hat, Nola passing out forks and Masamba licking funfetti icing off the second engine. A couple sitting beside me asks how I do it alone. This is me waking up to a flat tire and you falling asleep in our hometown. This is me driving through grizzlies, through avalanche zones, through Asian savanna, and tusk worth more than platinum and gold. Me and gorilla forest trying not to think about love. Teddy and Jane sharing a grilled cheese sandwich above the trees. How once I wrote to you about Polar Frontier, but I ran out of stamps. This morning, a shooter went into a nightclub in Orlando and killed 49 strangers. I'm telling my dad about Masamba when it comes on the news. Months after I'd been writing about one white rhino. Months after Oregon and Paris. Months after I told you I just couldn't be friends anymore. I can't stop writing about what I can't do. Months after Nola died in San Diego. How do we, st how do we write about what isn't happening to us? Months after you moved there to fly helicopters in the sun, what hurts most, how it keeps coming back. Months after I'd compare a rhino dying to the gun going off, how I would write to sidewalks covered in snow. My dad sips from his coffee mug, asks if there's still a can of ant spray under the kitchen sink. This is me trying to write about Harambe, trying to make sense of Masamba being born and Harambe being shot, how 49 people are dead. I don't know if you've heard about it yet, if you've put on your green suit or if you're still sleeping, but when I speak to you, there's the bridge to a picnic table, a sun drawn. Sometimes I wake up to the monarch's wings between my teeth. There's the way I was then and the way I am now. Sometimes I stare at my coffee until it becomes the second engine. There's how many are praying and how many are crying. Sometimes I drive 3,000 miles to spill across African plains. How many are on their way to God? This is my heart writing to everyone but you. I'm afraid the trees are always awake, that the caterpillars will always burn. I'm afraid I'll never really know the age of honeybees, the color of butterflies spilling. I'm afraid their bodies were identical, formless, and still. Thank you. Next, we have Christina M. How gently the hand slips out of the girl into its own pale orbit. This image from Christina M.'s poem, the, In Best New Poets, sticks with me. Just as gently, Christina's poem dips its toes one by one into a chain of surreal pools only to immediately withdraw and return to the poem's driving emotional center. 
In her work, Christina subtly interweaves rhymes and chimes for a poem that feels as carefully woven as a piece of fabric. Every thread has its place. She has a talent for interjecting staccato sentences that bring her point into focus like a sudden needle through cloth, as in her poem, Guzzle for Scorched Earth, which was published in track four. Um, it builds to a, in, from a steady thrum to, uh, to a furious beating drum, and it's an incredible piece. Christina is a, a Korean-American writer and student from Portland, Oregon. A Best of the Net nominee, she was named a 2017 finalist in writing by the National Young Arts Foundation. Her poetry has appeared in Strange Horizons, The Adroit Journal, and The Blue Shift Journal, among others. Uh, in addition, her work has been recognized by Bennington College, Hollins University, Princeton University, and the Alliance for Young Writers, Artists and Writers. So we're so honored to have uh, Christina here and to hear her stunning work. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Erin, and uh, thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Um, it's truly overwhelming in the best way possible. Um, so I'm gonna do, I think, I think I'm gonna be reading three poems today and um, the one in the book is going to be last. Um, all right, so this one is called Mid Focus. Everywhere and nowhere at once, my hands ring clean and ashamed. Oh, to count the ways I could scapegoat my way into this one. What next? Another bomb shelter for the damned? Surely this sky can disbelieve me better than that. I was so careful to place all its lights exactly where my joints would be. I left the old world so smitten, so capable. Body of a split second shunted through the glass. I've come here in peace, wouldn't you believe? The lamp's still on. I can pin this flesh like flowers to the door. My country never did sit right in the mouth. Time to lose another slurred word to the wind shatter when the coroner turns his back. They all said I'd never get out, and now look. I've got gold teeth, the finest death, the finest death wish on the continent, enough silence to fill a family tree. Body of a false storm hanging in the ears, body of a swan song scarring as it blooms. I'm only survivable standing in the eye of a language that hates me. Suspended and starving, I grow away from dawn in the flightless city. I undeserve the dangers I keep outrunning. Someday, I'll know how to ask about the inconceivable length of the arm, how to fall toward home and miss. Right. Uh, this next one is called The Cleverness Speaks, um, and it's written after uh, Janan Verley. Look, in this one, you're smiling. It's a bad time to be staring at a white girl. Is there ever a good one-way road into the burn? She's so smart. I know. I unbolted her for you. We don't see yet how easy it is, stumbling through the gas with one hand open. You're too exquisite to eat, sleepless in song under the fingernails. It's your last year as hometown suspect. All you ask is to live young and corrected. You think you can go negotiating now? You think we're safe because a girl has us laughing on our knees? I warned you, twice. It's not a whiteness that needs your attention, indivisible, liberty and jaundice for all. 
You've never even thought about skin. You have a bad idea, a high stunned laugh, pulse written past noon and straight from the skull. Like most outbreaks, like most raised hands, I'm just wondering why you love in a slaughterhouse language. Why we can't sleep without weapons close to our heads. We were born futile. Please believe me. I'm scared. I'm so scared. I want us to sound like ourselves for once. Only I can't know what you'd say. Want to make something cold and true about this. Only all the poets are outside counting the dead. I have to push your body into these scars. See how it dries in the stenciled light. Shame that silence into solid gold. Let's see. Sweetheart, how you like that. Let's keep all our visible names. <clears throat> um, and this last poem is the one in the anthology, uh, and it's called Meanwhile in America. My mother has a dream in August and won't tell me how it ends. On the fence, the crow counts to ten. In a month, we will all be citizens, and the man on the radio knows it. Limbs us into nightmare. Imaginary capital thrown to the page, red as a shock to the tongue. And all the lights nothing more than ways to fill containers. What kind of language lets that happen? I don't know. Is what I want to say, but can't. I hear it all. This can be wire and warp. This can be a story that forgets to move like a story. This can be told and retold, every time in the wrong country. I'll wait. Act of creation. I dissolve out of the dark. Yellow, by which I mean white, but cheaper. I stand only to warn and be warned. Keep still. Today, I am the body politic. Today, I am the body. My eyes are dry for three years. At breakfast, my mother tells me five times to be safe. She remembers how gently the stray grenade slips out of a hand into a family tree. How gently the hand slips out of the girl into its own pale orbit. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is better than this. I'm trying to be specific. On television, we are all of us thieves. Or better, the reason the sky looks so much closer than it did yesterday. The dawn breaks on my knee, acrid and faithless, proof that I come from somewhere. It's always been too late. Wednesday, smokescreen, the crow at the window watches us eat. Act of creation. The radio on my desk. The dial murmurs away from my touch. My ancestors flicker out of its jaw, curving smooth as an order to kill. The, bur the bulb above my head, spitting in my mother tongue. Autumn now. Dislocated into any other hour, I'd warpath my face bright with tar. The rain sours. It's breaking records this year, like everything else I've ever touched. Get your gas masks right here. Quick, while they're still selling them to you. Quick, while words are still words and they still fit between your mother's bones. Along the highway, the billboards, unblinking. I'm speeding, thinking I could build a house with all those weapons. But the man on the poster, the intercom, the history book, fixed on the distance from my hips to my chest, holds me down when I cry fire in the theater. Progress, he says. Look at you, all safe. Act of creation. Turn it off. Turn it all off. Yellow, 
by which I mean too hollowed out even for the birds, by which I mean starving slowly to life. The radio man, he sees us. He is so afraid. I will say this. It's nice being talked about. Too weak to stay. Too good to live. Incandescent at the prophet's feet. Crow's wings aflame behind the metal curtain between my legs. This was going to be about my mother. This is still about my mother. Don't you know these are dangerous times we die in? Minor chord, first inversion. Foreign girl found splayed in the prophet's back seat. The woman who raised her shuddering back into color. No sound. I will say this. It's nice knowing what I know about tyrants. Act of creation. A world unarmed. Three times. Check the locks. Sometimes I picture the house after. The land laughing on its axis precisely because it shouldn't be. I can't decide whether I've made it this far. Can't decide how to decide. Anyway, no human could breathe this fog. Not without some place to return to. Mother, I miss you. Next time, I want to be smarter. As if that will get me out. I want a storyteller here at all times. Look at me, still so helpful. Next time, the crows could sing a song of sickness. These vowels are murder on the heart, mother. They slacken in the throat like dust. Thank you. incredible. I love that poem every time I read it or hear it. Um, wonderful. Uh, next we have Elisa Ogi. Uh, her poem, Tree Haibun, is a declaration of the poet's independence from the rote and pre-rot, the institution of poetry and its rigid traditions, and it is also an, act, an enactment of that independence. The poet purges the directives of the poetic establishment, which declare her work, quote, too preoccupied with race. And the poem, just like its speaker, throws up the words I've swallowed down all day. Elisa's poetry swells and overflows with strong nouns, is obsessed with how language can be used to obscure or call a thing what it is. Her poem, Reparations, which won the 2015 Allison Joseph Poetry Award from Crab Orchard Review, inspects a grandmother's fingers, one by one, the, quote, lines on her palm nearly erased from age, because each contains a history, a truth that cannot be separated from a culture, a place, a moment in time. Poetry must engage with all of this, Elisa's best new poet's contribution declares. Elisa Ogia is an, in, an adjunct professor in Portland, Oregon. She received her MFA from the University of Oregon, and her poetry can be found in the Crab Orchard Review, Burnt District, and other journals. Let's welcome her. Hi, everyone. Oh, wow. This is a very different perspective than I had sitting in the back. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Open Books. This is a really great experience. Um, I'm going to actually start with the poem from the book. It is called Tree Haibun, and it starts as one big paragraph, and it ends in a haiku. So, Tree Haibun. A mentor says my poetry is too preoccupied with race. 
There's nothing timeless about sensationalism, and he quotes Coleridge, as if Coleridge parroted the words of God. He tells me to examine pine trees for wisdom. In this system, I'm expected to be the best, expected to be obedient enough to excel, and I do. At everything, at once, not only on paper, but in the stall of a library toilet, where I throw up the words I've swallowed down all day. The burn feels natural, as if my great-great-grandmothers taught me how to purge in a dream. No one said that I'd feel cathartic, that the damage might be intentional. I'm preoccupied with my skin color in the light and the weight of excellence around my belly, so yes, profess admiration that I can be the opposite of dangerous and the opposite of safe at once. Profess that a man snuck a hand up a modest skirt hem on a Los Angeles bus and I couldn't stop him, crushed by other passengers. I don't know what he looked like, though his cologne smelled like pine trees. I don't know why a man stopped my lover and me once as we exited the Chandler Pavilion in our nicest clothes. Salieri's The Great Kublai Khan of the Tartars premiered. Actors taped back their eyelids. We left early to catch our bed. The strange man had, had dimples like mine and asked where he could buy a girl like me in the city. No one knew where that question was directed. At a blonde-haired American, at a black-haired American, at a preoccupied laugh track long since discarded. Two, man, two men la laughed and one woman draped a sweater over her obedient dress with beadwork that resembled trees across the hem. On the walk towards our metro line, love reached for me. Love told me that some people like to get a rise out of others. I named the insult sensational, but it came out as timeless. Love reached for me and said I was overreacting, so I did what I do best. Pine trees bend in snowstorms until it breaks in the summer, ill-prepared for warmth. Um, the second poem, so it's interesting Sarah mentioned Orlando because there was actually a shooting in my hometown, and the thing that I still reckon with every day is I say that and you don't know which town it is. So this poem deals with that, and it's called How to Dismantle an Airplane. Epigraph. When will enough people say, stop this madness, we don't have to live like this? Richard Martinez, father of Isla Vista shooting victim Christopher Martinez. Step one, exhume the engine. It's easier than it looks. Break down the metal shell and see a halfway heart of pistons. It's shaking, air-cooled ending like the sun before detonation. This riddled engine will become scrap or the most important sign of us. Salvaged bullet hole constellations that vanished too fast in summer. We search for reasons behind the trigger, but do they even matter? The heart still shivered downward as the airplane failed to function. Step two, collect reusable pieces. The reasons might not matter, but there's history in the fragments. Collect flight deck instruments, windows and bolts accounted. And why can't we recall each face that crossed the television? No one can. No one is forever like the sun, the madness. Orlando to Isla Vista and a hometown shooting goes unimagined until another takes an airplane back to the beginning. Smell of burning rubber, blood across school windows, fuel caps, flaps, back, black box recorder. There is no point in holding on if we do not remember. Step three, address the black box. Recorder, take us back to the beginning. 
When a young sun lived above the Pacific and a small town knew no madness. We cooled our faces in summer air and swept out fires to the ocean. It was good still, and our failures pushed us forward. Now 39 towns witnessed, yet we say we can't remember. Soon you too will be dismantled and melted into bullets, and nothing left but bolts and blood will hint at your existence. Recorder, there is nothing easier than the cycle of indifference, but don't die without detonation, patterns of our history. Help us face our halfway hearts before we concede another ending. All right, and I have two shorter ones. Um, this first one was based off of a prompt where I was supposed to take an abstract feeling and make you all feel more tangible about it. So this is called Forgiveness. When Henry VIII chopped off his fifth wife's head for not giving him a son, I want to believe her last words were, I forgive you. Not because he was right, not because her body was his to mandate, that her light was his to conquer, no, I wish she forgave him for her sake. In the Tower of London, she kneeled and drew an outline of the new world on the cobbles. She released an arrow of fear from her hands, or was it boulders? She combed her hair with grief that looked like whalebone, all to come to a decision. Release the king who knows no better. Release his ethics that sound like a guillotine. She traced a sun on the curve of her stomach. No one else could do what her body could. Read from her country as birth could save her. Read on the new world and there lies the weight. You cannot change the person you love. You can only free yourself. Um, and this last one, so sometimes when I read, I feel like I'm like bringing the mood down. So this last one, um, I, I was talking to a student and I was like, okay, give me a title. And he was like, Madonna. And I still don't know if it was like Madonna the singer or Madonna, like the Christian icon. So I went with both and here we go. It's short. All right. It's called Madonna and. Madonna and Whitney and Michelangelo's Marble Angels, Siegfried and Roy Rogers and those who survived the weekend, bless them. Bless the students that don't stay silent when they have butterflies to say, an Elwood forest with its chrysalis of active verbs and rain. Bless the virgin and the robins who give pleasure its fair chance, Evita and Fukuoka, my mother's politics, and to you all bless the worries, our hope beyond the hurt, and the delphiniums in our churchyard, just like a prayer, like resurrection, that calls us closer to this world. Thank you. Thank you, Elisa. Flurries of ash transform into flurries of snow and fail to become them as Caitlin Rich's poem, American Landscapes, shifts back and forth across the U.S.-Mexico border, contrasting the life of her nephew with that of the children growing up in and around the ma maquiladoras strung along the border. The workers in these factories run by foreign companies live and work in highly impoverished conditions and Roach seeks to interrogate the ways in which we lie to ourselves, choose to render the beautiful or innocuous what is neither. Quote, soapy clumps blown out of a machine's mouth, this is all he knows of snow, the speaker says of her nephew. Flurries of snow thus transform back to ash. 
Caitlin Roach is a poet from California, currently living in the Southwest. She earned an MFA in poetry from the Iowa Writers Workshop. Her poems appear or are forthcoming in Colorado Review, West Branch, Copper Nickel, The Journal, and many other publications. She teaches creative writing and literature at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where she is an assistant professor in, in residence. Let's welcome her. Thank you, Erin, for that introduction. And thank you, everybody, for um, showing up tonight. Um, can everybody hear me OK? Yeah. Yes? OK. Um, thank you, Erin, for organizing this. Thank you to Open Books for hosting us. Um, and thank you to Erin and Amanda and Sarah and I don't know where they've gone, Christina and Elisa for, um, um, for reading tonight. It's a real honor to be among your very beautiful and powerful poems. Um, I am going to be reading the poem in Best New Poets is in five parts, and I'm actually going to be reading parts two through five. Um, and as Aaron mentioned, it's titled American Landscapes. On an American Airlines flight to Las Vegas, Nevada. The woman I loved is no longer. She escaped her body and went elsewhere. Her molt still wet like the road these wheels slow to. I've been combing for something to put in its place. I was the one who stayed tomorrow to hold the flame so you could see by the bluing heat that could never give us the definition of white. Don't you remember? In the room you woke, I knelt to gather the scattered flashes of glass, a mirror dispelled when I heard the news. On a clear night, the pronghorned antelope can see the rings of Saturn we learned when we crossed state lines and haven't been the same since. Imagine killing something that can see into the universe, I whispered. On a plane, I sat next to Hunter who showed me his kills unprompted. Glutting, the great horned owl freezes his own and thaws them when ready to feed, he told me. When I spoke of the antelope, he quieted for a moment, then swiped to a picture of his comely, 20-something-year-old daughter posed in a neon bikini. Isn't she something, he said, and looked hungry. On the 11, Albuquerque, New Mexico. The 11 is a bus. This morning, on my bus route to work, a man holding a gallon bag full of heroin asked me directions to San Mateo. I told him I was going there too, but the truth is I stopped praying a long time ago. He was begotten of a man so obsessed with form it broke him and so now lives in collapse. I knew an immigrant activist who did a four-month stint building a prison in Texas when he was 16. He'd just crossed and knew not yet of Brinks but needed something to do with his body. He went to the edge of a cave to hear the millioned wing beats of bats outpouring just to hear the sound, just to see something erupt from a dark center. Under Wisteria on Marquette Avenue. Despite what everyone says about a goddamn dream, there's mourning at all these nodes of asylum. Somewhere a lapwing claps itself to the bowl of a tree, echoing its name to sweeten what wants what's in its scrape in the ground, but never comes. Down the block, a hysterical heap of purple lets loose like a slouched mouth, slurring its fragrant mess as a man sits under it, narrowly alive, drawing the last bit out from the spoon's small pool, 
while sweet Williams break through the alyssum around him, and despite this country's best effort, still exists. Um, this last part is, is, has a subtitle of Friendship Park USA, uh, and for those of you who don't know what that is, it is uh, at the most western edge of the U.S.-Mexico border wall. Um, it's a, what they call a park, um, and the, the border wall extends into the Pacific Ocean, um, and rather than a park, it actually looks more like a prison yard. Um, it's heavily militarized and surveilled 24 hours a day. Um, and it's a place where a lot of things that are sometimes invisible to many people about American life become hyper-visible and very felt in the body. Friendship Park, USA. So much arrives in form of seeing something other than what's there, like a shadow arriving first, but when I saw foam sacks perched on spines of sickweed that summer, I saw them. There was no way to mistake the spit for something other than cocooned. I breathed, they trembled, but stayed put. What hid lived in just enough fear to remain. On this side of the border, the body at the most western edge of the wall, splitting even the ocean, looked latched, but knew better than to make contact, to stay out of the bishop's straight shot. Signs nobody could read said nothing the threat of just living didn't warn already. Between the three walls, a pair of bodies moved measured, aware of their being watched by at least a body behind. Who was watching the watcher watch me watch the man in front of me, peering through the crosshatch iron mesh, a wall within walls, waiting for bodies beloved he knows he cannot touch to arrive on the other side? I moved toward the body I loved and touched it. How fucked. A small white cross on the fence between fences marked a death before us or else all of the ones to still come here. This space used to give more, and before that could barely be counted as marked. Years later, in white sands, I'll see a darkling beetle I'm never meant to see, sun frozen on the dunes. Fish out of water. Seeker of dark places, dweller in dark, some shock of a missile must have exploded its tiny heart as it crossed the desert in the night, its three-parted body stilling part by part by part. Inch by inch, this iron hull corrodes of itself. Up close, lichen sprawls bleed out from the heart I know it does not have. To its north, women are shackled to hospital beds during labor, giving birth to their babies in the presence of prison, prison guards for passing through this thing that protects as much as the man who denies even the bluest blue absorbs everything around it but itself. Acute failure. I've spent years studying blue. We believe in three words, he said, peace through strength, but even the land will depose it, its makeup a sentence, a mouth summoning its own demise by simply being exposed to the air that enters this body and that one and that one and that one. Thank you. Our final reader of the night is Amanda Turner. Amanda Turner's work is crafted with such precision, every word feels balanced upon the last. 
Her poem, What Clowns, comes together like how I imagine the brightly colored construction paper cutouts made by the speaker's daughter are carefully placed layer upon layer until they overflow. All art is hunger still, Amanda writes in a poem called Monarch, and we can see that this is true in the way her work drives through carefully wrought images, found language, citations, single moments, always chasing a question, always hungry to understand. Amanda Turner is the author of the chapbook of Nectar, selected and introduced by A. Van Jordan for the 2015 Poetry Society of America Chapbook Fellowship. A graduate of Columbia University School of the Arts, she's taught poetry, writing, and composition at Santa Clara University and has served as assistant poetry editor for Poetry Northwest. Her poems have appeared in Calix, the Western Humanities Review, the Sycamore Review, 14 Hills, and other publications. She lives in Portland, Oregon with her husband and daughter who are both here, which is wonderful. So let's thank them all for traveling up here tonight and welcome Amanda. Thank you. Thank you, Erin, and thank you, Open Books, for inviting us all here tonight. Um, and thank you to all the other poets. It's a little intimidating going last, going last all, after all of your incredible poems. Um, and thank you to all of you for spending your Friday night with us and with poetry. Um, so I'm going to start by reading the poem that's in the anthology called What Clowns? What Clowns? My four-year-old daughter likes to tell me how the world works. Make what you don't want to make, she says, as she cuts purple and yellow pieces of construction paper into swords and bowls and toppling vessels. That's creative. If you're off the fence, you do bad work, she continues, as she pastes these pieces together into what she calls the big mess. I give her a plate of carrots and apples, peanut butter on bread, milk, Squirrels outside collect their nuts, jump from one branch to the next. Lou Reed sings, there's a bit of magic in everything, and then some loss to even things out. A year ago, I told myself to stop doing anything that takes everything and doesn't mean everything. So much food falls to the floor. This, this is my favorite part. Gene Kelly kicks his arms and legs out to the side and lifts his smiling face up to the driving rain. What clowns but the graceful ones, a friend asks. My daughter licks her peanut butter into hills and valleys. She stares out the window. Brightly colored firecracker boxes from Diwali disintegrate into a soft pulp in the rain. Death, she tells me, means half the body is flying and the other half, apple seeds. She sips her milk, extends her hand for a napkin. When I say, maybe God is energy, she says, no boots. <laughs> um, the next poem is called December 4th, 2014. Um, Gainsborough's coastal scene with shipping and cattle. And um, this partly has to do with a painting by the 18th century English portrait and landscape pa painter uh, Thomas Gainsborough. It's the cattle you notice first, then the clouds, 
It reminds you of one of those days without a protagonist, drinking coffee under a gray sky in a seaside town. Everything that happens stands in parallel relation to everything that's happened before and after it. It's not a smooth continuum. There are doors that lead to waiting rooms, and this is one of them. Everyone on land looks out to sea, and everyone on the sea looks to land. Even the cattle are dreaming of what the sea might be like. It's almost democratic. The white suds from soaking dishes inch up my arms. My daughter pulls my sweater at the waist. She has her kitschy mousy tongue watch, a souvenir from her uncle, in her hand. It's working again, she says, as she admires the ruler's prominent gloved Mickey Mouse hands. What time is it, she asks. We check the microwave. It's 8.05. The watch says it's 5.20. Okay, so that's important, she says, wagging her finger at me. Well, it's not correct, is it, I add. But it's important, she repeats. My grandmother and I used to play jack straws, and I remember that uneasy feeling of not wanting to agitate the pile of shovels, swords, crutches, and wrenches as you pulled your ladder free. It was your turn as long as you kept the peace. On the streets of our cities, people are laying their bodies down on the ground for Michael Brown and Eric Garner and Tamir Rice and Trayvon Martin. As my daughter and I leave our house, we see the windows of our car are iced over. Hot water from the kitchen faucet melts the ice, leaving us a thin wash of landscape to drive through. And the last poem I'll read is called The Nest. On the day of your wedding, your mother found a hummingbird's nest, fallen yet still attached to a single branch with seven brittle leaves. She placed it in the bathroom beneath the mirror so that when we excused ourselves from the intoxicating grip of Lady Day and Etta James, when we swayed pleasurably from the showering jacaranda and whirling pinatas, we might recognize this soft, sanguine effort while checking our own reflection in the mirror. We might recognize that the incidental is rarely peripheral and that the center of any story, no matter how disastrous, might be so close, so astonishingly gentle, we could hold it as a nest in our hands. Thanks for streaming this extra episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Open Books hosted this Best New Poets 2017 reading on January 26th. Subscribe to our podcast when you get a chance. We appreciate your clicks. Tune in again soon.